0: So we'll go ahead and do what's probably most familiar to you, a lot of clinical things um, and clinical uh, cases and scenarios. It's my pleasure to welcome uh, Prem Soman, who is the the Director of Nuclear Cardiology Research and the Associate Director of Clinical Nuclear Cardiology um, at uh, the University of Pittsburgh. And he'll go through in the next hour and 15 minutes a lot of cases. So some of those questions you guys have been asking about TID, things like that. Um, Dr. Soman will address, so welcome Prem. Thank you very much and good afternoon. I just want to say that the extra 10 minutes of break you got was on on my account, so please listen to me carefully. (laughs) So, uh, you know, this is such a, a large topic that I'm not even going to attempt an exhaustive review uh, of everything uh, relating to uh, restratification, that's three-fourths of nuclear cardiology. So what I propose to do today is to touch upon some aspects of restratification that are particularly important for the test that, lends, that lend themselves to test taking, and hopefully some of those concepts that will be helpful uh, in the practice scenarios too. So um, let's start with the case. This is a 56-year-old male with chest pain who did very well on the BRUCE protocol, had a normal hemodynamic response, normal ECG, um, and the perfusion scan, as you can see here, is normal. So, which of these statements is most appropriate? This patient has no CAD. This patient has no obstructive CAD. Uh, The annual risk of AMI and cardiac death is less than 1% for the next three to five years, and, and this patient is immortal. So, Chris, are you going to take it away for... Good. Okay. Well, I'm happy about uh, the 80% of people who got it right, but, you know, I'm an eternal skeptic, and I'm, I'm disappointed about the 20% who didn't get it right. So here, here is, here is the, the correct answer, of course, is that the annual risk of AMI um, uh, is less than 1%. Now, you, you can say that this patient has no coronary artery disease because you can have non-obstructive coronary artery disease, and the perfusion scan is going to be completely normal. Now, you could uh, make an argument for saying this patient has no obstructive CAD. But again, when you use uh, perfusion imaging for diagnosis, what you do is, is develop a probability of disease. So you could say this patient has a low likelihood of obstructive CAD, but it would be wrong to say that this patient has no obstructive CAD. Uh, So this is the right answer, and I I was not being completely facetious when I said this patient is immortal, because once in a way, I will get a telephone call from a referring physician saying, hey, Prem, this guy had a normal stress test, and he had an MI. Uh, So, you know, the risk is low, but the risk is not zero, and and people with normal scans do have events, although the, the rate is pretty low. So uh, the concept behind that question uh, is to differentiate the diagnostic versus prognostic use of MPI. So when you talk about diagnosis, we estimate the probability of obstructive CAD, and with prognosis, we are talking about the risk of cardiac death uh, or acute myocardial infarction. Now, if you look at the diagnostic values for perfusion scanning, um, and this is from a guideline paper in 2003, you see that the sensitivity is good. For both exercise and pharmacological stress tests, much has been made, especially in the echocardiography literature, about the modest specificity of myocardial perfusion imaging. Now, I want to uh, bring in this concept of verification bias and the, and, 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 and the concept of normalcy. Now, for a mature modality like SPECT, it's very difficult to do a study of its performance characteristics. But if you think about it, if you're going to look at a database, or if you're going to retrospectively look at patients who've had CAT because you want CAT to be the gold standard, we rarely send patients with normal SPECT to CAT. So you end up with a very biased population of patients uh, overrepresented by people who had an abnormal SPECT and therefore went to CAT. You would have very few patients who had a normal spec and still went to CAT. And this is called verification bias. It's a very clearly defined phenomena uh, in statistics. Uh, And so these diagnostic accuracy studies with with, with CAT as the gold standard always have a falsely low specificity. And they have a falsely high sensitivity. So to get around this came the concept of normalcy. What would happen if you take a cohort of patients who have a very low probability of coronary artery disease and then you did SPECT in them? So instead of doing cath to disprove the presence of coronary artery disease, you just take a population of patients that already has a low probability of CAD. And when you look at the normalcy data, uh, that's pretty good. The specificity in this population is about 90%. Now, the normal C cohort is not a panacea for this problem of verification bias because if you think about it, that is not the population in whom we usually do SPECT imaging. You don't do it or you shouldn't do it in people who have a very low probability of CAD. So although uh, it it works as a good substitute for uh, verification bias, it still doesn't take away all the problems of of this situation that we have, that patients with normal spec rarely go to cap. Now, there are multiple strategies that improve the specificity of, uh, of myocardial perfusion imaging, and all of these will be often tested. The first is the concept of using a tracer that is less prone to attenuation artifacts. Now, most of the specificity problems are due to the propensity of the modality to have attenuation artifacts and therefore false positive results. Thallium, as you know, has a lower energy um, and and is more prone to to attenuation artifacts um, and maybe, or or one of the technetium agents, which is higher uh, energy of 140 kV is less prone to attenuation artifacts. Now, this um, is a, a study that, that is widely quoted and is, is also tested very often. It's by Raymond Taifer, who I think you heard earlier today. And this, looks, this, is, this is a study performed in women, but is applicable across the board. And it looks at the improvement in specificity here in yellow when you go from thallium to MIBI to gated spect. Right? We, we, we use gated spec to differentiate attenuation artifacts from infarcts. So, so you see that there's a significant improvement in specificity when you change tracer and when you, change, uh, when you add gating. Now, here is an example of gating uh, and, and how it helps differentiate uh, a perfusion abnormality that is real, a fixed perfusion abnormality due to infarction, from that due to inferior attenuation. And what you see here um, are are two patients, both with inferior perfusion defects, okay? Now, if you look at regional function here, you see that there is a difference in tracer density between systole and diastole. So the partial volume effect by which we determine whether a a particular segment of the myocardium is thickening or not, so there's a change in the count density between systole and diastole. So you, you know that the wall. A motion, a regional function, a regional thickening here is normal, whereas there's absolutely no change between systole and diastole um, in this patient. So this this is how gating. This is this is an attenuation artifact. This is a true infarction, and that's how we use gating. Now, um, what did I do? So the next strategy is is attenuation correction. Uh, How many of you apply attenuation correction to your studies? Still a minority. Uh, This is a highly underutilized uh, strategy for reducing attenuation artifacts. At University of Pittsburgh, the majority of our studies are attenuation corrected. You can do this with CT, or you can do this with gadolinium. Um, we, We use a line source of gadolinium. And here uh, are the the, the stress and rest images of a patient with a mild inferior uh, defect that you see here. Um, When you turn on attenuation correction, now at the top is a patient, uh, this is the same patient with the stress images and you can see here this is the attenuation corrected stress image and you can see how the mild inferior perfusion uh, uh, defect is completely corrected so this is a proven uh, approach to improving specificity and when tested in a large multicenter trial uh, was shown to improve um, specificity uh, substantially it also improves most studies show that it also improves sensitivity Uh, To a a small degree, and and, and at some point we can discuss why that happens, but this is a common test question, and that is the use of attenuation correction improves, and and among the various multiple choice questions will be specificity, and that, that is the correct answer. Um, other strategies that are not that widely used, prone imaging, uh, as some of you might do. Important to note that when you read the prone images, you have to always read it uh, with the supine images, because the prone images produce artifacts of their own. So in combination, uh, the supine and prone images improve um, uh, diagnostic specificity. And, and, and for that matter, even the, non, the attenuation correction when you apply attenuation correction, you, it, is, it is always better to read the unattenuation-corrected images first and then read the attenuation-corrected images. I, I, I do think that one should not rely only uh, on the attenuation-corrected images. All right, so that was about some aspects of the diagnostic use of myocardial perfusion imaging uh, that often appear in the test. Now, some other considerations... A 67-year-old male um, who was scheduled to undergo a diagnostic MPI with farm stress, okay, this is important, for exertional chest pain and arthritis, he had arthritis, that's why he was undergoing farm stress, no known coronary artery disease, so this is a diagnostic test. He's on a beta blocker for mild hypertension should the beta blocker be stopped prior to the stress test, okay? Uh, So concept here is that all cardioactive medications reduce the sensitivity of both exercise and pharmacological stress tests It's very important and comes uh, it, it lends itself to testing in the exam it's not just exercise test it's not just the debutamine stress test the ischemic threshold is reduced for all types of 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 uh, stress testing and therefore these medications must be stopped if the purpose of the test is a diagnostic evaluation. If this is a patient without known coronary artery disease and you're doing the test for the purposes of estimating a probability of obstructive coronary artery disease, medications have to be stopped. We also often do stress tests for the assessment of therapy or of prognosis on therapy. So if you have somebody with a mild perfusion abnormality or moderate perfusion abnormality, you decide that they will do well with medical therapy, and you want to do a follow-up stress testing, obviously you don't stop the beta blocker at that point in time. You want to know how they're doing on medication, right? So if it's purely for a diagnostic use, medication should be stopped. If it's for assessment of therapy or prognosis, then you don't stop medications. So let's move on. So we spoke about the diagnostic use. Now let's talk a little bit about prognostic use of MPI. But it's important, I think, to differentiate why you're doing the test. Is this a diagnostic purpose or is this a prognostic purpose? Now, traditionally, for cardiological purposes, we have uh, stratified risk into low, intermediate, and high. And, and these are widely accepted, cut-off uh, uh, points uh, for these different classes of risk. And we say some, uh, as, uh, an individual has a low risk if the predicted risk of Cardiac death or acute myocardial infarction. Cardiac death or non-fatal myocardial infarction um, is less than 1% per year. That, that's widely accepted. Now, the greatest strength of myocardial perfusion imaging, as, as all of you know as practitioners, um, is, the, is its prognostic value. And here is a review of one meta-analysis. There are several of these, which shows that if you have a patient with a normal study and compare this to the prognosis of an abnormal study, there is a huge difference in the risk of, again, this is non-fatal MI um, and cardiac death, okay? Um, at last count, there were about 16 studies involving about 30,000 patients uh, for a mean follow-up of two and a half to 3 years, um, and, and with patients with a normal study had an adverse event rate, and, and the adverse event was either cardiac death or non-fatal MI, of less than 6% per year. Very few modalities in diagnostic medicine are supported by such wealth of data. Now, at this point, I also want to point out, uh, now, we're very concerned about radiation dose. That's, That's what everybody's talking about, patients, payers, the press... Um, And one of the mandates of ASNIC is that in the next few years we need to bring down the radiation dose associated with myocardial perfusion imaging to less than 9 millisieverts. And there are multiple ways to do this. One such way is to do a stress only perfusion study in patients who you think have a low likelihood of disease. Now, this has been proven in at least two large studies, with, you know, this is Dr. Malmerian's group with 16,000 patients in one. And 5,000 patients in the other. That if you do a stress only study, and that is normal, then the prognostic implication of this is identical to a normal stress rest perfusion scan. I mean, you know, if you have a normal stress study, you rarely even look at the, at the rest study. If there is the concept of reverse redistribution. Nobody really knows what that means. For all practical purposes, a normal stress study with normal function and perfusion has an excellent prognosis. So this may be something that, that you want to think about in your patients. So here is, here is the next question. Now, this is a 68-year-old male with atypical chest pain who now, this time, this is somebody who underwent an adenosine SPECT study, which was normal. Normal perfusion, normal function. The most uh, appropriate interpretation of this study is that the annual risk of MI or cardiac death is less than 1%. The annual risk of MI or cardiac death is low. Pharmacological SPECT cannot be used for cardiac stratification, and the risk associated with normal exercise and pharmacological SPECT are identical. All right, can I go back to the questions? Okay, so here again is a very important concept. This is pharmacological spec, right? And the risk associated with pharmacological SPECT, a normal pharmacological spec study, is much lower than that of an abnormal pharmacological spec study. No doubt about that, okay? But the risk is not less than 1% per year. One of the most important prognostic indicators is functional capacity. And when patients have to have a pharmacological stress test because they cannot exercise, they have stratified themselves into a higher-risk group. So it is much lower than an abnormal stress test, but it is not 1%. It is 1% to 2%. So the the correct answer there would be uh, the risk is low, but you don't put a specific number to it. Now, this is important because um, as we think about this, the risk associated with a myocardial perfusion scan is contextual. It depends on the population that you're studying. A normal spect always has a lower risk than an abnormal spect, but the absolute risk differs based on whether it's a 20-year-old person or an 80-year-old person. That makes sense. Right, whether it's somebody with diabetes or no diabetes. So normal farm stress is associated with a higher event rate than normal exercise stress, um, and the inability to, to exercise indicates a higher risk of adverse events. And this is the slide that we saw. And now this is again very important for the test. And this is a list of subgroups where the risk of a normal spec is greater than one percent per. Rate. This is the animal risk. So farm stress. Diabetics, chronic kidney disease, and the elderly. These are all recognized groups where the risk of a normal stress stress test is is higher. Now, here is a great example of the contextual nature of risk. This was published by Rory Hakamowicz, and I, I remember distinctly when this was presented. These are two groups of patients, and this is the annual mortality after a normal stress test. These are groups of patients who are less than 85, elderly patients, but less than 85 years of age, and these are patients greater than 85 percent of 85 years of age. Both these groups had normal stress tests, and you can see that the annual risk in this group is much higher than the annual risk in this group. So what does that mean? Does it mean that the stress test is not functioning normally, it doesn't work in patients above 85 years of age? Well, look at the normal mortality in these patients. Right, The average mortality in an 85-year-old in this country is nearly 5% per year. So yes, an stress test does identify a lower-risk group within that large group that you're testing. So a clear um, um, demonstration of the contextual nature of this. Diabetics, di- the diabetics we're all familiar with, you can see here that Um, This is a low-risk study, a high-risk study in in red here, and you can see that the low-risk study indicates something very different uh, in diabetics as opposed to non-diabetics here. So this is less than 1%. This is somewhere between 1% and 2%. This is, again, showing this from another study from Cedar sinai Uh, normal study, 1% to 2% annual risk in diabetics. And the last group um, is chronic kidney disease. Now, there are no data. There are, there's, there's a signal in the literature suggesting um, that they do have a higher-than-normal risk. There are no studies specifically looking at this. The reason for this um, is that there's a very high prevalence of CAD uh, in patients with chronic kidney disease, especially diabetic nephropathy. It's estimated that in patients with end-stage diabetic nephropathy, patients that you're evaluating, for example, for transplant, the prevalence of obstructive coronary artery disease may be in excess of 80%. And if that is the case, no test is going to risk stratify. If you take a population of patients where the prevalence of disease is very high, a negative test doesn't mean all that much. You know, it's just like taking an 85-year-old with multiple risk factors and typical angina. What does a negative test mean? In that the negative predictive value is very low. Now, it's also striking. Um, to know that most patients with mild CKD, okay, they have mild kidney disease, they will die of coronary artery disease before they get end-stage renal disease, right? So patients with mild kidney disease die more often from coronary disease than from progression of kidney disease. And it's also being recognized that the best treatment for these patients is a new kidney, and that the transplant itself ameliorates Some of the coronary artery disease in this population. All right, so uh, there are several slides because I really wanted to emphasize, and this is why um, I put that first question you know, that multiple choice option of this patient is not immortal, right? You you have to, uh, a person referring a patient to a stress test really has to have a good understanding um, of what that information means. So now the second concept I want to introduce in this. Context is the warranty period of a normal scan. And this is also uh, tested very often. And the question is, if you have a normal perfusion scan today and the annual risk of death in MI is less than 1%, how long does that warranty of a low adverse event uh, last for? Okay, This is, again, data from CEDA-Sinai. Um, and, and here in, in, in these uh, open bars, this is the mortality for year one. Okay? And the, and the black bars are mortality for year two. So, for example, if you take a 50 year old male who has an exercise study and has no known coronary artery disease, both in years one and two, the risk is very low. Now, if you take a, an 80 year old male <clears throat> who has pharmacological stress tests, okay, no known CAD, the risk is higher but it's not significantly different from years one and two. So the warranty period of a normal stress test is not affected. Now take a 50-year-old male who, in contrast to this person, has a history of coronary artery disease. Okay, this is a patient who has known coronary artery disease. Risk is low in the first year, but it's higher in the second year. So if you have known coronary artery disease, as time progresses, the risk increases. So the warranty period there is shorter. And similarly, if you have an elderly person, okay, so the two things that are known to affect the warranty period, one is age and the other is, 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 is known coronary disease. So in this particular study, those were two important parameters. Uh, this is from the Mayo Clinic and again looking at the concept of warranty, and they again saw that if you have a history of coronary artery disease, uh, the low risk of adverse events lasted one or two years, whereas if you did not have a history coronary artery disease, the low risk lasted for a much longer time. Now here they also found that if you did an exercise test and achieved a heart rate above 130 per minute, then again uh, that meant that the warranty period was sustained. What you might be tested uh, uh, in the exam is is about the warranty period in the context of diabetes, and this is a very widely quoted study from Gary Heller's lab um, showing again that in patients with normal perfusion, uh, the non-diabetics have a much longer warranty period than diabetic patients. This is something that comes in the tests very often. So um, I would encourage you to remember this. So from all of these studies, the average warranty period is about you know three, three to five years. We don't have an absolute number. I don't think anybody's going to test you on that, but it is about that in patients without CAD, patients who are not elderly, and patients who get more than eighty percent of their heart rate on an exercise test. Okay, and it is known to be lower in diabetics and in older patients. So that is about the concept of the warranty of a normal test. So, you know, the two things. Uh, to remember these two things as separate. One is the risk number that's less than 1% or more than 1%. So you have certain subgroups where the risk of a normal test is low but it's not as low as less than 1%. The second concept is about warranty. It's the period for which this low-risk lasts and you have definite subgroups where that warranty period is shorter than the standard quoted period of about three to five years. All right, so now let's talk a little bit about risk stratification. Uh, we spoke about risk stratification in the context of a normal study versus an abnormal study. I want to talk about further refining risk stratification uh, when, when the study is abnormal. Now, as you are all aware, uh, there is a, a huge volume of data indicating that the extent and severity of perfusion defect is related to outcome. You know, we see that time and time and time again, in studies involving thousands of patients. Now, it's important to remember that outcome is generally defined by mortality, and this could be either cardiac mortality or all-cause mortality, uh, and non-fatal MI. So I want to introduce the concept here of competing risk because this does show up um, in the nuclear cardiology boards and sometimes on the cardiology boards. And the competing risk concept is that if you identify non-fatal MI and cardiac death as two separate outcome parameters, okay? So let's say you have a placebo group and a group in which you institute some therapy, and you have two outcomes. You're comparing the, the rate of death in these two groups and the rate of MI in these, these two groups. So let's say that one group, a lot of people die. You're not going to have then in that group the same number of people who are alive to have an MI, right? So if the other group has more MI, that doesn't mean that the risk is more. It may just simply mean that more more patients died in the other group, and there were less number of people alive to suffer an MI. So this concept is known as competing risk, and therefore, in most of these studies, you need to use death and myocardial infarction as a composite endpoint. There is also a lot of debate uh, as to whether one should use cardiac mortality or all-cost mortality. Uh, you could use either. Many studies use all-cost mortality, and cardiac mortality is almost always a fixed percentage of all-cost mortality. In many of these studies, we censure patients with early revascularization, and this again comes up in the test. So if you have a SPECT, and the patient underwent CABG or PCI within one week, or so of the stress test, it's quite clear that that revascularization procedure was driven by the abnormal stress test, and the revascularization procedure actually changes prognosis. So in a follow-up study, you have to take away these patients. Generally, um, anybody who has a revascularization procedure, within 60 to 180 days of the index diagnostic test, these patients are censured. And and the concept there is that any disease progression or any revascularization that occurs after this time can be attributed to disease progression and not directly to the stress testing modality. The most important thing to remember is although we have a large volume of data, all of these studies are retrospective observational studies. There are very few prospective studies that have looked at the value of, you know, restratification and stress testing. Okay. Um, Now, when we talk about the degree of abnormality, most of us use a semi-quantitative perfusion scoring. Uh, Now, do you guys use this when you report scans? Do you score the 17-segment model? How many of you do that? So quite a number. It is recommended that we do this, and uh, it's a standard semi-quantitative scoring system. Now, remember that the sum stress score which is the total score at stress, is indicative both of the extent and severity of infarction and ischemia. So if you see a perfusion abnormality on rest alone, it's infarction. So the sum rest score indicates the extent and severity of infarction. Uh, The sum stress score indicates the extent and severity of infarction and ischemia. And the sum difference score indicates the extent and severity of ischemia. Is that is that clear? Is that okay? All right. So that's important because many of these studies use these scores to restratify stratify patients. I put this study here for, by Ladenheim, Ladenheim and Pollock, which was one of the first studies to show this um, superior restratification stratification when you look at the extent and severity of perfusion abnormality. They did planar thallium uh, in, in, the, in the late 1980s and simply showed that the cardiac event rate was. Uh, directly related, almost linearly related, to the number of reversible risk factors. So a very crude method of quantifying perfusion abnormality. Uh, Rory's group from CEDES, who have published extensively, uh, did this inspect um, and categorized patients based on the SUM stress score, which, um, to recapitulate, is a composite index of both ischemia and infarction, and showed that both cardiac death in green here and um, MI in red here um, are linearly related to the degree of abnormality. As the degree of abnormality increases, the, the, the risk increases. So not only is a normal scan associated with a much lower rate than an abnormal scan, the degree of abnormality further allows us to restratify. stratify Now, the other parameter that we can get from a gated spec scan is EF, And as you know, EF is one of the most powerful prognosticators. Most of that data came from radionuclide ventriculography studies in the 1980s, but this is one of the first studies to show that with SPECT. Um, And this is from Cedars. And you can see here, as ejection fraction decreases, the cardiac rate increases. So that if your ejection fraction is 50 um, or more, your cardiac death is about 1% or less annually. And by the time you get to severe LV dysfunction, there is quite a substantial attrition rate from cardiac death. So now you have perfusion and you have function. And can you marry the two and come up with very refined restratification? So here is a study that does that. And now they're looking at some difference score. So some difference score is ischemia. It's not a composite of ischemia and infarction. It is only A measure of ischemia. So if you categorize patients based on the degree of ischemia and further categorize them based on ejection fraction, and then look at patients who have a normal ejection fraction, you find that it's only the worst degree of perfusion abnormality uh, that actually portends a bad prognosis. So if you have mild perfusion defects, and the um, ejection fraction is normal, that doesn't indicate bad prognosis. But when your perfusion abnormality becomes severe, then you have bad prognosis. Now, what about patients with moderately reduced ejection fraction? When your EF falls, even moderate degrees of perfusion abnormality indicate a bad prognosis. So much so that if you have the most severe degrees of LV function abnormality, any perfusion abnormality... Uh, indicates a bad prognosis. So as you risk re-stratify patients, this is important to note. A small perfusion abnormality means something different in somebody with completely normal LV function as opposed to somebody uh, with, with abnormal LV function. Now, you could use this in multiple ways. Here is one algorithm that you might use uh, if you classified patients based on the stress ejection fraction. If you have very severely abnormal LV function, then in most of these cases, if they have ischemic cardiomyopathy, the next step would be to look at viability and revascularization. Of course, the stitch viability study has put all of this uh, into question. But, but most of us, this is what we still practice. If you have an ejection fraction that is more than 30%, so either normal or mildly abnormal, then you can classify patients based on the degree of perfusion abnormality and decide who needs revascularization and who doesn't. Now, this is not an, a, an algorithm that has been prospectively proven, uh, and, and, and you, know, you could have your own algorithm to stratify patients. All right. Um, let's talk about some other situations. 77-year-old male, he's a smoker with atypical symptoms, uh, underwent treadmill exercise testing. Okay, so he'd go seven minutes and 20 seconds on the Bruce protocol, completely normal hemodynamic res- response. He had atypical chest pain. Okay, so he did have chest pain, but it was deemed atypical. And he continued to exercise until he stopped due to uh, fatigue. So non limiting chest pain, which was considered non anginal. But this is a problem that we all face. He had two millimeters of ST depression in the lateral lead. So nothing exciting on the stress test uh, other than the ST depression. Everything else looks fine, and the perfusion scan is completely normal. So what do you do with this patient? So here is where... um, So how would you interpret this? He needs coronary angiography because of the ST depression. His risk of cardiac death or non-fatal MI is intermediate. His risk of cardiac death or MI is low. And the risk is indeterminate due to the conflicting exercise and MPI findings. Chris? All right, the wide spread there. So, um, you know, I think the answer is is risk of cardiac dithromy is low. And this is where the Duke treadmill score comes in. So you know how to calculate it. I don't think you would be asked to calculate it. But our patient would fall into this intermediate range. right? And most patients who have fairly decent exercise capacity have non-limiting chest pain and non-anginal chest pain. Even if they have ST depression, will fall into this intermediate category. Now, what is the additional value of perfusion imaging in this group? So this is, uh, these are patients stratified based on the Duke risk score. And you see here that in the intermediate group, perfusion imaging has a lot of additive prognostic value. So if you have a normal perfusion scan, the risk of cardiac death or MI is extremely low. And that's where our patient fits in. You also see that if the Duke Treadmill treadmill score indicates low risk, okay, and the perfusion scan is abnormal, that is not such a low-risk patient. So assessing perfusion has additive value over just the Duke Treadmill score. It's also important that in an average practice, about 50% of patients will fall into the intermediate risk category of the Duke Treadmill score. So it's not a very discriminatory test. And in these patients, MPI is useful for additive risk stratification. Now, I also want to bring in this concept of differential risk stratification for MI and death. And we talked about competing risk. uh, But you can also classify risk separately for death and MI. We don't do it very often practically. But this appears in the stress test uh, in, in, in the, I'm sorry, in, in, the, in the exam. Um, and, and if you look at the parameters that predict cardiac death in, in, in univariate and multivariable regression analysis, you find that the sum difference score or the ischemic burden is very predictive of myocardial infarction, whereas the ejection fraction or LV function is predictive of cardiac death. This does appear on, on, on the exam. And the sum stress score, which is a composite of both infarction and ischemia, are predictive of both cardiac death and MI. And this was clearly shown in a multivariable analysis. Um, the most powerful predictor um, of MI and death of MI um, is the sum difference score, and cardiac death is the ejection fraction. So just to reiterate, uh, sum stress score predicts death and non-fatal MI some different score predicts MI, and EF predicts death. I, it's an important concept. So we talked about the risk being con- contextual, right? You, you, you say that somebody has a low risk. You don't quite really know what their risk is. So an alternative approach is can we predict who will benefit from a therapeutic intervention, for example, a PCI. Uh, there has been a considerable amount of data, um, and here again from the CDES group, is a factorial analysis. It's the interrelationship uh, between the percentage of the myocardium that's ischemic, the mortality risk, and how the therapy provided, whether it's medical therapy or revascularization, how this interacts with the ischemic burden. Now, these are the two important graphs here. The purple graph is the risk of death in patients who had medical therapy, And the green graph is the risk of death in patients who were revascularized. And you can see here that when there is only a small amount of myocardium that's ischemic, revascularized patients actually do worse than medically treated patients. And this is understandable because the procedure is associated with a certain inherent risk. And when there's no benefit, risk outweighs benefit. But as the degree of ischemia increases... Patients with, who are revascularized have a, have a lower mortality rate. And exactly the opposite happens with medical therapy. When you have low-risk medical therapy, patients do better. And when you have high-risk medical therapy, patients do worse. Um, and the, the lines cross over somewhere around 10 to 15%. And again, uh, the, the absolute number is probably not that important. Somewhere in that range, um, medical therapy does worse, uh, than PCI. So, if you had a patient who had a mild amount of ischemia, they would fall uh, here uh, in this end of the risk uh, spectrum. They would do better with medical therapy. If you had a lot of ischemia, they would have a high risk with medical therapy, and you can actually predict that their risk would be uh, considerably benefited or, or reduced by revascularization. Now, the, again, the courage. Uh, trial put a a question mark on all of these findings, and and all of these studies have to be interpreted with caution. Um, If you have a a large enough population of patients with a lot of ischemia, then you can test this hypothesis. Obviously, if the population has a large number of patients with small amounts of ischemia, uh, then that differences will not come out. And I think that's what happens in most of these large trials, it's the regression to the mean. You will have more patients with less ischemia and less patients with a large number of ischemia. Now the Courage Nuclear substudy, study and, and I want to um, say here that one should interpret this with a great deal of um, skepticism because it was not powered, it was a post-hoc analysis, but the, the parent Courage Study showed that optimal medical therapy in patients with stable chronic coronary artery disease Uh, the optimal medical therapy did uh, just as well as PCI plus optimal medical therapy. But if you looked at this non-randomized sub-study, where if you look at patients who happen to have a perfusion scan at baseline, and sometime within 6 to 18 months after therapy, so this is not a group that was randomized to this strategy, these were patients who simply happened to have two studies. If you look at these two groups, you find that the degree of reduction in ischemia was greater when you added PCI. Okay? And if you look at the percentage of patients, okay, with more than 5% ischemia, right, Um, you find that if you look at the death or MI rate, Patients who had a greater than 5% ischemia reduction on these two studies had a better prognosis than patients who had no ischemia reduction. Now, uh, one has to be very careful about interpreting subgroup analysis when the parent trial is negative. Uh, But I think it it gives us a uh, signal that this very biologically tenable hypothesis that patients who have more ischemia will do better with revascularization, uh, there is a signal that this might really be true. And what is more important is that at the 18-month scan, um, the degree of ischemia was very closely correlated with outcome. Okay? Now, and, and, and finally, uh, Rory's group who published the, the first study Um, re-looked at a larger cohort of patients, of 13,000 patients, and what they found was that if you have more than 10% ischemia, patients benefit from revascularization, but in this larger study, they found that this was only patients who did not have prior myocardial infarction. Okay, Very interesting concept. So now, not only looking at ischemia, but what is the effect of scar on this choice between medical therapy and revascularization? Very important concept, because many of the patients that we see in practice as a clinician, the patients that I see in my clinic, they're not patients who neatly fall into these categories of normal scan, ischemia only, scar only. A lot of these patients with known coronary artery disease have a little bit of scar and a little bit of ischemia. And so what they found um, was these patients if they have more than 10% ischemia, they will benefit from early revascularization if their scar extent is less than 10%. Okay, This was the first study to show this. I doubt if this will make it to the exam because this this is a very recent study. But the way I put this together, conceptually, is that when you consider revascularization, you have to decide is the benefit greater or the risk greater. And as the amount of ischemia increases, of course your benefit is going to be greater. But you have to temper that with the knowledge that as the amount of the scarred myocardium increases, then your benefit reduces. So somewhere in the 10 to 15% range for ischemia, and in the 10% range for scar, revascularization uh, seems to benefit patients more than medical therapy. All right, so that's about... um, refining risk stratification in patients uh, with an abnormal scan. Now, a few uh, special situations that are often tested. Um, Here is a 58-year-old woman with atypical chest pain and multiple risk factors. She has good functional capacity. Her baseline ECG is shown here. Okay. The most appropriate test, exercise dobutamine stress echo or adenosine spect and i will okay that's great okay i forgot what the choices were so this is eight uh, this is what 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 is this sorry okay so there is a left bundle branch block There's a left bundle branch block. There is also atrial fibrillation. But the purpose of this ECG is to show you the left bundle branch block. And uh, the concept here is that when you have a left bundle branch block, uh, one doesn't exercise these patients traditionally. uh, You use adenosine SPECT. uh, Multiple studies showing that the false positive, the very unique and typical Uh, perfusion abnormality pattern, which I'll show you in a second, is much more prevalent with exercise stress testing. It is not uh, eliminated with the use of vasodilator stress, but the the prevalence is much higher. Um, As I see more and more of these patients, I'm convinced that it does occur in a substantial population, substantial percentage of patients with LBBB, and I have actually seen it in patients on the resting study as well. Uh, this is the typical perfusion abnormality that you see. It is an anteroseptal perfusion abnormality that almost never involves the apex. It is, if it involves the apex, you have to invoke LED disease. Um, but if it's a circumscribed, very typical perfusion abnormality like this, I think you can comfortably, and if the patient has a left bundle branch block, you can comfortably attribute that. The paradoxical septal motion uh, is shown here. Uh, I, I think the, the, the surface view is the best. Um, and you can see here that as the lateral wall contracts inwards, the septum is moving paradoxically. So the impression you get when you view this image is that the whole heart has got a uh, to and fro lateral motion. So very, this, again, should tip you off Uh, to the presence of left bundle branch block. So this is the paradoxical septal motion. You see that the entire heart is is swinging uh, during the cardiac cycle. And there is one other abnormality here. Blinking. And that's because of AF. AF. Excellent. Very good. Okay, so the concept for that case was vasodilated stress is most appropriate for MPI. I would also add to this that um, it is not eliminated by vasodilator stress. It occurs with less prevalence, but, but it is present. Um, the other thing that uh, I have a lot of problem in applying in practical terms is TID. And so I'll put together a few slides. Uh, pathologic TID, as we know, is most likely to diffuse subendocardial ischemia. So I'm talking about TID, which, uh, which is pathologic, Now, the cutoff values for TID uh, were best established for dual isotope imaging, for um, rest, thallium, and stress, maybe, imaging. Uh, We rarely do that, but for this group, there's a clearly established cutoff of 1.22. Does anybody do dual isotope imaging? Anybody does? Okay. Uh, my personal feeling is that there's very little indication, given the huge radiation dose with, with thallium, um, there's very little indication. There may be specific situations where you use it. Uh, but this is the population for which this is most well-established. There are studies suggesting cutoff values for other populations, Um, For example, 1.12 is suggested as the cutoff for single isotope exercise studies. And certainly we know that the threshold should be higher for farm stress patients. We don't quite know what that actual cutoff is. Remember, uh, one of the ways in which vasodilator stress acts is that it redistributes blood flow from the endocardium to the epicardium. There is a redistribution of blood from the subendocardium um, to the epicardium. So by, by virtue of how it acts, it can produce spurious TID on your stress rest images. This is not seen in exercise studies. So we know that the threshold should be higher. So um, if you have a patient who has TID and has abnormal perfusion, you should consider the fact that you may be underestimating uh, the degree of perfusion abnormality. So if you have LAD disease, With TID, um, you always think whether does this patient have multivessel disease, and you're only picking up the LAD disease. When when TID occurs in the context of normal perfusion, multiple studies have shown that it has a low specificity for multivessel disease. Recent studies have also shown that a normal perfusion with TID does not mean uh, bad prognosis. Now, what are the situations? If you have TID with normal perfusion, it can happen when there's hypertension and LVH, and especially if there is a hypertensive BP response uh, to stress. So when I read and I see TID, the first thing I ask the fellows is, did this patient hike their blood pressure during exercise stress testing? It can happen when there's a difference in the heart rate between the stress and rest acquisitions. And multiple technical factors uh, related to differences in acquisition, um, you know, slice selection, tracer doses, et cetera, can produce TID. So I know there, is, there's, there are no firm guidelines, but I think it, it would be reasonable to conclude that if you have TID with abnormal perfusion, Um, or if the patient is a very high-risk patient, an elderly patient with typical angina, multiple risk factors, I think one needs to consider the possibility that this suggests extensive CID and an adverse prognosis. With normal perfusion, um, I think we're increasingly convinced that TID alone in the context of normal perfusion uh, probably should not be the sole reason to refer to cardiac catheterization. And I doubt if you will be tested on any of these. In the exam... Um, there will be a clear indication as to what, what the examiner wants you to, 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 to uh, answer. Um, for example, it will be an elderly patient who has angina, has a small perfusion abnormality, and the image shows the ID. Then, you know, then you know what they want. Now, the other area where there is a lot of confusion... Uh, is the ischemic ECG changes during vasodilator stress. And this, again, is an area of of ambiguity. Uh, Some um, observations from three or four studies uh, is that uh, with vasodilator stress and coronary artery disease, when patients have ischemic ECG, about 90% of patients have an, an abnormal myocardial perfusion scan. So this is a relatively uncommon situation where the perfusion scan is completely normal, um, and, and there is ST depression with, with adenosine or reg adenosine. And the concern, of course, when this phenomenon was initially uh, reported, was uh, is there balanced ischemia with triple vessel disease, and is that why the spectrum is normal? So there have been four studies that, that I could find that, that looked at this, and they're very confusing uh, because they all show different things. They're all retrospective studies. They're small studies. Important to note that All of these studies excluded patients with any baseline ECG abnormality. So if you're doing an adenosine stress test in a patient with a conduction abnormality, or if they have LVH with secondary uh, changes, repolarization changes, then this concept of ST depression doesn't hold good in those patients. They should have a completely normal baseline ECG. Um, So if you look at the incidence, it is extremely low in these populations of patients. Uh, they mostly occur in women. Uh, it's been rarely reported in men. I've seen it in men, but the studies in, in the studies, they mostly occur in women. As you can see, more than 80% of patients in all of these studies were, uh, that this happened were men, women. And there's a very disparate data on events, with some studies showing a high incidence of triple, uh, not a high incidence, but a higher incidence of triple vessel disease and adverse cardiac events, whereas others showing a complete lack of correlation between this and an event. So, again, um, it's something to recognize, uh, but I don't think, um, as the depression, unless the patient has a high pretest probability or is a high-risk patient, I don't think it should be the sole reason to send these patients for cardiac catheterization. Um, all right. So let's move on to some other special considerations. A 68-year-old lady with hypertension and exertional dyspnea um, did six minutes on the Bruce protocol. Was limited by severe dyspnea and had a hypertensive BP response. So these are the the rotating planar projections. Uh, this is the anterior view. Do you see any abnormality? So this is the rest. This is the stress. What about the lungs? So increased lung uptake of a technetium tracer. Most of the data on lung uptake is with thallium. Uh, there, are, there are few studies or fewer studies uh, showing the prognostic implications. Now, in the olden days when this was first reported, most the, the only... Um, modality available was planar, non-gated planar thallium, right? So you did not have a measure of LV function on those studies. And the lung uptake of thallium, which is indicative of pulmonary edema, was a surrogate marker for bad LV function. Now, we now have very good ejection fraction assessment that comes along with the perfusion scan. So this is probably not that important. But here is a special circumstance where this was important. This is a patient with a completely normal perfusion scan um, and normal systolic function. So what could be the reason for increased lung uptake, severe dyspnea in this patient who is hypertensive? A little... So this is diastolic dysfunction. And you can see here that the, the, the septum is hotter than the lateral wall. The cavity is small. The walls are thick. So this is a patient with hypertensive heart disease, diastolic dysfunction, exercise-induced parmedema, and there the finding of lung uptake was actually useful. So this is, again, uh, testable as one of the prognostic indicators when you do a perfusion scan. What are the other, other uh, uh, known prognostic indicators? We talked about the inability to exercise, the extensive uh, perfusion abnormality, uh, reversible perfusion defects indicate worse prognosis than fixed perfusion defects, multivessel distribution, LV dysfunction is one of the most uh, powerful predictors, abnormal perfusion with TID, and I, I wrote that very consciously, uh, and also post infarct ischemia if you have uh, uh, scar and, and ischemia. So, uh, this can come as a multiple choice um, question uh, about the prognostic indicators. So, um, let's talk about a few other situations, and I'll, I'll finish up here in a few minutes. This is a 70 year old, a 70 year old male patient with cabbage three years ago. He asks his physician if he needs a stress test. Okay? So completely asymptomatic 3 years ago underwent revascularization and says Dr Sherman do I need to have a stress test just to look for um, uh, ischemia so what is the recommended approach yearly stress testing following cabbage is recommended no stress testing in patients 5 years post cabbage no testing in patients less than 3 years post PCI and all of the above are incorrect Okay, let's go back. So, okay, the correct answer is all of the above are incorrect. So it's true that yearly stress testing following cabbage is not recommended. No stress testing in patients less than five years is not correct. If the patient develops new symptoms, then it is appropriate to retest them. So no testing less than five years in asymptomatic patients or patients without change in symptoms. Right? So that is the, uh, that is the, the catch here. Uh, no testing is not correct, but no testing in asymptomatic patients or patients with stable symptoms. And five years is the cutoff. After five years, uh, there is no recommendation as to whether to do a test or, or not to do a test. And you, you, you would be appropriate if you decided. So the, the, the numbers to remember are five years for cabbage and two years for PCI. And, and it's inappropriate to test asymptomatic patients within this time frame. Okay, a uh, 60-year-old male underwent PCI of a mid-LAD lesion two weeks ago. He's currently asymptomatic, and he's concerned about restenosis. Which of the following is true? A positive study is strongly indicative of restenosis. False positive test results are frequent early after PCI. Routine early post PCI spec is recommended for the detection of restenosis. Chest pain is a good indicator of restenosis. Okay. Uh, false positive results are very frequent. Yeah, that is the right answer. Um, and The concept here is in the weeks, and I'm not aware of a a transition time frame beyond which this is not true, but certainly in several weeks, in the several weeks immediately following PCI, uh, false positive myocardial perfusion studies in the region of PCI are common. This is attributed to endothelial dysfunction. Most of the data come from the pre-PCI era where people did plain old balloon angioplasty and there was a persistence of, of perfusion abnormalities after the procedure. Uh, there's very little data uh, in, the, in the stent era when now we routinely deploy stents in these patients. But conceptually, it's important to note uh, that soon after PCI, you can continue to have perfusion abnormalities in that region. Um, a 68-year-old 68 68 year male with hypertension, okay, uh, this is important, presents to the ED with ongoing chest pain. So when he presents to the ED, he has chest pain. The ECG was normal. The technetium tracer was injected during chest pain. Okay, But the SPECT images were acquired an hour later, at which time his chest pain had completely subsided. Now the SPECT shows normal LV perfusion and function. Uh which of the following statements is true? This patient does not have CAD. This patient can be discharged home with a low risk of adverse cardiac events. Now, the normal perfusion scan is unhelpful since the images were acquired after subsidence of chest pain. He was injected during pain, but by the time he got to the scanner, his pain had subsided. Acute chest pain imaging is most helpful in patients with known prior myocardial infarction. All right. Okay, you're spot on here. Um, So no no CAD, that's not true. We discussed that even in the context of standard stress testing. Uh, The the points I wanted to emphasize here, uh, one is that uh, the, 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 the tracer should be injected when the patient has ongoing chest pain. That's very important. Uh, when you acquire the images, it doesn't matter because the perfusion pattern is frozen and pertains to the time uh, of, of, of injection of tracer. And acute chest pain imaging is, is not helpful in patients with known prior MI because if you have a perfusion defect, a resting perfusion defect, you don't know whether this is new or whether this is old. So the correct answer is this. Now, this comes from the ERASE chest pain <laughs> trial uh, from Jim Udelson and, and colleagues where about 3,000 patients were actually randomized when they presented to the emergency department, were randomized to a usual care strategy where they would have serial troponin estimations and a stress test if the troponin was negative, or the usual ED care plus a spec scan in the ED. Okay? Um, and then uh, they, they, they were triaged, not, not based on this, but based on what the, what the ED physician wanted, Um, And and follow-up was uh, uh, the the adjudication of events was based on ECGs, enzymes, and a stress test. Now, what is very interesting here is that if you look at hospital admissions in patients without ACI, okay, so these were patients who had non-cardiac chest pain, in this group you reduced hospital admissions by 10%. It doesn't seem like a big number, but there are 5 million hospital presentations or ED presentations with chest pain every year. So this has huge cost implications. Now, uh, I don't have a slide here, but it's, it's important to point out that in the group with ACI, there were no inappropriate discharges, right? So patients who had uh, acute coronary syndromes were admitted appropriately, but in the patients who did not have an acute coronary syndrome, uh, the, the rate of unnecessary hospitalizations was reduced by 42 patients, so for, by, by 10%. Now, there are multiple observational studies demonstrating the high negative predictive value and, and prognostic value. There are randomized trials, um, and this is the only recommendation for the uh, radionuclide imaging guidelines, this is the only recommendation where the strength of evidence, it's a class one recommendation, and the strength of evidence is level A. There is no other recommendation in the guidelines that has this. And, and this is because it, it's level A, because you have two prospective randomized trials showing the efficacy of this approach. It is logistically difficult. It is based on the concept of the ischemic cascade Um, And uh, as was shown in a dog model, if you occlude a coronary artery, the first thing that happens is regional flow heterogeneity, which is what we pick up with perfusion imaging. Wall motion abnormalities, which is what we pick up with stress echo, happens very soon afterwards. But ECG changes and symptoms happen very late in the ischemic cascade. So the corollary of this finding is that if a patient has chest pain, and you can show that there are no perfusion abnormalities or wall-thickening abnormalities during chest pain, then it is very unlikely that the chest pain is due to myocardial ischemia. That's the concept um, of this. So the, the, uh, the technique is optimal if um, the patients have symptoms, ongoing symptoms when you inject them, and 50% of patients don't have symptoms uh, when, they, uh, when they present to the ED. Uh, There there are not very specific data on when sensitivity drops off beyond a useful range. Most studies show that you have reasonable sensitivity even two hours or so uh, after subsidence of the chest pain, but this is not in the guidelines. And as I pointed out, it's important to note that it cannot distinguish between new and old myocardial infarctions, and therefore it should not be used in patients with known MI. Um, Now, in contrast to that, Here is a 65-year-old male who presents to the ED with rest chest pain, which lasted for 30 minutes. But it resolved five hours prior to presentation to the ED. So the difference here is that this patient did not have ongoing symptoms when he or she presented to the emergency department. The ECG was normal, and the most appropriate imaging agent to use here is MIBI. B-M-I-P-P, M-I-B-G, or thallium? Okay, great. I think that was B was the right answer. So this is a methylated uh, branch chain fatty acid, Uh, and the difference between perfusion imaging and fatty acid imaging is... You do get uh, a metabolic abnormality in ischemic myocardium um, that that which does not use fatty acid but reverts to glucose metabolism. So you will get a um, a cold spot in that area with BMIPP imaging. The difference is that the metabolic abnormality persists for at least 24 hours after the acute ischemic. Um, uh, insult. So this is the concept of ischemic memory imaging. So if a patient comes to the ED with ongoing chest pain, the most appropriate uh, approach is myocardial perfusion imaging with a technetium agent. And if the patient comes to the ED uh, with remote ischemia in the past 24 hours or so, then BMIPP uh, is, is the modality. Here is a very elegant study, uh, that was published in circulation from uh season <laughs> and Jim Udelson. So this is the result of a stress test. okay Patients with known ischemia underwent a thallium stress test with demonstrated ischemia while on the stressed, uh, while on the treadmill. Okay? They were then sent home and brought back the next day, and BMIPP was injected without any additional stress, right so this is Imaging of ischemic memory from the ischemia that, was, um, that occurred more than 24 hours ago, and you can see a similar perfusion abnormality here. So this was uh, proof of principle. Uh, one last area. Donna, I have about four minutes. Is that right? Donna? About four minutes? Okay. Um, another s- special population is, is the heart failure population, um, and I just want to touch uh, base uh, I want to touch a bit on, on MIBG imaging, so uh, technetium, uh, BMIpp, and now we 're going to an iodine uh, label tracer miBg um, and this is, this is for patients with heart failure so this is the presynaptic terminal in the myocardium, um, and, and as you know, um, in patients with heart failure, there is down regulation of the sympathetic nervous system, and there is Uh, an inhibition um, of the uptake uh, or reuptake of noradrenaline. Now, um, BMIPP is an analog of norepinephrine. So it behaves just like norepinephrine. And in heart failure, it is not taken up by the myocardium. So if you calculate the ratio of BMIPP in the heart to the mediastinum, the mediastinum takes up uh, BMIPP, that ratio uh, is greater than uh, two at least in, in normal people. As heart failure progresses, less and less BMI, less and less MIBG uptake happens in the myocardium, and so this ratio is altered. It's a very uh, known to be a very powerful prognosticator in these patients. And you can see here that as the heart failure worsens the ratio worsens. And it has been shown in beta-blocker trials. I don't know if I have a uh, slide here. It's been shown in beta-blocker trials that as heart failure improves, the uptake of bmi increases. I think um, it would be important to know about the ADMIRE heart failure trial. It's a couple of years since it was published, uh, and you might find a question about this um, on the boats. So this was about 1,000 patients with with NYHA class 2 or 3 symptoms, so moderate heart failure, uh, with uh, LV systolic dysfunction, uh, they all had uh, MIBG imaging, uh, and and the question was, can this predict uh, outcome? And the outcome uh, was um, mortality was the primary outcome measure, but heart failure progression, arrhythmic death, um, and cardiac death were also looked at. So if you look at um, event-free survival probability from the mortality standpoint, you can see here if the heart-to-mediastinal ratio was more than 1.6, this predicted a much better prognosis. Remember, this is a sick heart failure population, so you're not going to see the same prognostic behavior as you see uh, in a normal perfusion scan. Uh, in a stress test population so this is a sick population and there was a clear uh, differentiation uh, based on the heart to mediastinal ratio but what was very interesting here uh, is because because this images the sympathetic nervous system the question is can it allow us to refine risk stratification for arrhythmias can you identify a subgroup of patients who have LV dysfunction but may not require an ICD? That, that's the question uh, uh, that was being asked. And if you look at arrhythmic events, okay, and these were defined as episodes of sustained ventricular tachycardia, appropriate ICD discharge, or an aborted cardiac arrest, the event-free survival... Um, in this group with a normal hot mediastinal ratio was more than 96%. So very powerful, not yet approved by FDA, but pending consideration by the FDA for this purpose, but um, it's it's, uh, very uh, promising. I'm going to end with pre-op evaluation. This is, uh, as you know, a very hot topic, and again, uh, a lot of conflicting data. Um, There's evolving data in this area The trouble is that there were multiple recent randomized trials showing lack of benefit of coronary revascularization. So you can do every test you want. We are very good at predicting risk, but even in the high-risk population, we're not quite sure how to modify that risk, how to improve that risk, because it does appear um, that revascularizing these patients uh, does not do them any good. And so the question is, you know, do you really need to stress test them? Uh, but for the purposes of the exam, the guidelines are very clear. Um, and and uh, uh, the, the, the theme of the guidelines is that if it's urgent surgery, if it's emergent surgery, don't waste time with restratification. If they have been revascularized in the past five years, even with known CAD, uh, they have stable symptoms, go ahead with the surgery. Uh, and, sim- and the same approach in recent in patients who've had a recent coronary evaluation. If they have major clinical predictors, and these are very clearly defined, um, bad arrhythmias, heart failure, evidence of myocardial ischemia, um, and one more, which, is, uh, which I can't recall right now. But if you have the major clinical predictors, this is the population with that you want to evaluate and treat. Um, and, and basically, further testing uh, is may, it may be helpful to refine restratification in the intermediate risk Population. Now, this is very clearly defined in the guidelines, which is why I don't want to spend too much time uh, going over this algorithm. Okay. Donna, ten seconds to spare. Thank you.